All right, well, good evening to those of you who dare remain, so I appreciate that. Well, we have some remedial work to do tonight in Acts chapter 5. That's my fault for not getting through everything, uh, but it was quite a, quite a passage to go through. So um, why don't we just ask the Lord again one more time to, to bless the ministry of the Word tonight, that I'll be clear and, uh, and intelligible, and that you will listen, and most importantly, that the Spirit of God would work. Father, tonight, uh, we are so thankful that we can gather together, that we enjoy a, oh, a refreshing amount of unity and, and oneness through our Savior, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Spirit that works and lives and moves in each one of us that claim Christ. So Lord, tonight, Father, Spirit, we pray that you would, uh, you would use your word, that you would change our lives, and that you would give us uh, boldness as we go forth to do what you've created and saved us to do. That is to be faithful witnesses unto the end. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the beginning of Acts chapter 5, we had Ananias and Sapphira. And we're not going to go back that far. But in uh, beginning in verse 12, we see that really uh, the witness of the apostles was taking root. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 17, we see that there is yet again an occasion where Peter and the other apostles are imprisoned. And we said that God really seeks to work in His timing and in His way so that you and I, as faithful witnesses, can proclaim the gospel. And we saw that there's really... Uh, nothing greater than the power of prayer when it comes to witnessing and to proclaiming the gospel. It's not a pragmatic thing, but it's a prayer thing. It's a God thing. And then in verses 17 through 26, we saw really that God works through the evil intentions and interruptions of man. And... and uh, we see even in verse 17 that the Sadducees um, and the Sanhedrin were filled with jealousy and, and they sought really to, to imprison the apostles, as I said just a few minutes ago. And here we understand that God doesn't lose control, that He is in control and He uses even the seemingly interruptions here and even the evil intentions of man to accomplish His purposes for the ability of His faithful witnesses to proclaim and preach the Gospel. And then in 27 through 32, we saw last week that as they were imprisoned, remember what happened? Suddenly they're not there anymore. And, and we, 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 can read, we could maybe read the account on our own time, the reality of the angel of the Lord coming and and, and really taking care of the apostles. And, and so the Sanhedrin scramble. And in verse 27, 
um, through 32, we see that, that God works with incredible patience. And, and so much so that these were the same people that, that uh, uh, just crucified Christ just a few weeks earlier. These are the same people that, that, that pointed to the Son of God and said no. These were the same people that, as Luke puts here, put to death Christ by hanging Him on the cross. The Prince of Life. And so God works even with those who are antagonistic towards the Gospel with incredible patience. And so uh, we see that that is, that is true even today. That aren't we glad that God worked with incredible patience with you and with me who were formerly enemies of the Gospel. Amen. And uh, that really is no different um, Though we could say, well, we weren't part of the Sanhedrin. Well, my friends, we were we were on the same team. If the land, the sand, uh, the line was in the sand, we were on that same side. And uh, praise God that it's not just for God to work to those who believe, but God's patience, even at this point in the church's history, extends to the persecutors. <laughs> To those who actually call for Christ to be crucified. What greater picture can there be of the mercy of God towards sinners, right? And so his patience extends. And so that's where we left off in verse 32 last two Sundays ago before Easter. And now as we look at the external working of God, working through His faithful witnesses, I'd like us to call our attention to the reality that, that God's working, right? It's in His timing and in His way, right? It, it, um, it, it is a work of great patience, right? It is a work that goes, that goes right past the evil intentions and interruptions of man and it is a work that I think Luke clearly demonstrates here that cannot be stopped. It's a, it's a work that cannot be thwarted. It's a, it's a work that, that no matter what happens, God will see through to the end. And there's some great, there's some great comfort in that. Because the, the early church saw that very clearly. And it's for us to see that tonight, that as, that as God seeks to work through you, as you continue to be faithful in your witness at work amongst your family. How hard is it, right? To be a faithful witness amongst your family. It's hard for me. Sometimes the people that are closest to us are the, are the reasons why we hang our head the most. But my friends, God's work cannot be stopped. It just cannot be. And so tonight in verse 33 and following, we're going to see that. So let's take up in Acts chapter 5 here, verse 33. But when they heard this, that is the Sanhedrin. And what did they hear? They heard that, that it was Jesus Christ yet again that the apostles were preaching. And furthermore, Peter kind of says, by the way, you're rejecting because you're the ones who put him on the cross. 
So in verse 33, we pick up and he says, but when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They were furious and intended to kill them, the apostles. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And so, who is Gam? Oh my word, Gamaliel. How how many times have you done that? Where you just you know how to say something and then you just can't do it in front of people. Well, the tongue is a wonderful thing. Gamaliel, right? Who is this man who stands up? He's a Pharisee. We're told in verse thirty-four. He's a teacher of the law. He's respected by all the people. Gamaliel is a man who stands up and he takes the law very seriously. He's a Pharisee, so he's not like the Sadducees who really only take the written law. He's a Pharisee that, that takes not only the written law, but the oral law. But he's well respected amongst both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In fact, Gamaliel is so respected that uh, the Mishnah, that is the, 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 the oral codified law later on, records it this way. It says, since the teacher Gamaliel, the elder, died, there has been no more reverence for the law. And purity and abstinence died out at the same time. So he was pretty influential. That's a pretty, that's a pretty staggering thought. And he stands up. And he says, wait a second. And so, everyone is put outside. The apostles are put outside. They're not here to hear what is about to be said. And what's interesting, I think, about the relationship between Luke and Gamaliel is that there's somebody in between them. Remember, Luke has this great relationship with the apostle Paul. Not yet. (laughs) <laughs> Not yet, but he will. And, and Paul, when he was Saul, was the student, the prize student of guess who? Gamaliel, right? We are, we're even told that in Acts chapter 22. And so I think it's, it's, it's not even outside the realm of possibility that, that even though Everyone but the Sanhedrin are put outside. Luke still has an account of what goes on. It may just very well be that this account is being told to Luke later on through the Apostle Paul, who had access to the high priest, we're told in Acts chapter 9, and who was a student of Gamaliel in Acts chapter 22. And so the men are put outside in verse 35, and he said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you propose to do with these men. So he stands up and he says, hold on a second. Verse 36, for some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. So there was someone that caused problems, that caused you, remember the Sanhedrin and specifically the Sadducees, why did what was in their heart towards the apostles. It wasn't even that they were, they were blaspheming. 
right? Uh, where is that? In verse... Oh, I had it here. In verse 17, right? What's in their heart? But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with what? With jealousy. With jealousy. And so, this Thutis guy, remember him, Gamaliel says? Well-known incident at the time. Josephus, uh, an early Jewish historian, records several types of uprisings that fall by the wayside, like this Thutis uprising. And then look at verse 37. Hey, and if you remember Thutis, you remember Judas of Galilee. He rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So it brings up two uh, relatively well-known incidents to the Sanhedrin, certainly of people that uh, claimed to be something and really had little consequence in history. So, in verse 38, he continues on. He says, so in the present case, so in pointing to the apostles outside the doors, right? I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. Boy, out of the mouth of a Pharisee. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God Himself. (laughs) And so, we have out of the mouth of Gamaliel essentially the defense of the apostles. Now remember, don't forget what were the Sanhedrin about to do to these apostles. Yeah. They were so infuriated. They were so at wit's end that they called them in and the entire body intended to kill them save Gamaliel stands up and says, hey, remember? Remember this incident, incident over here? Remember that incident over there? It was of little consequence. But even if even if it was of little consequence, if this is of God, well, we can't stop it anyway. So is Gamaliel saved? No, I don't think so. I don't think, I don't think we can go that far. I think as we understand where he is, it's not, it's not true at all. He's, he's really a doubter. He says, this really isn't going to amount to much. But then, understanding who God is, he says, but if it does, if it is be the power of God behind it, something greater than what we can do is going to happen. And I want, to, I want us to consider for a second that God used a religious man in the midst of a religious argument and tension to further his witness. Think about that for a second. Oftentimes, we discredit religions of the world. And, 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 and we attack them, and, and we grow frustrated by them. And certainly, there's, 
There's all kinds of reasons of truth why we should feel frustrated and, and, and why we're like, ah, can't you just get out of your religious system and come to Christ? But don't not consider for a second, so consider, that God just even used the religious Pharisee to protect his witnesses to further the preaching of the Word of God. And so, while there are, you know, five main religions in the world, right? And our culture, I think, likely affords us, especially here in the United States, a great level of freedom to preach, to witness, to pray, to meet. Why? Because of the religious in our culture. Think about that for a second. It's not because America is a Christian nation. My friends, I hate to tell you, and I don't want to make it a big point, but the United States of America was never a Christian nation. It wasn't. Now, throughout the thread of our history, there were godly men, sure. But the United States of America was not, first and foremost, a Christian nation. And it's not because the USA is a Christian nation that we can, we can meet here and we can own land and we can have all these luxuries of preaching the gospel. Oh, my friends, I really do think that it is parallel here to Gamaliel standing up and saying, and so while we grow frustrated and while we grow hardened by the stumbling, the crutches, the blinders that religion puts on men's hearts, and that so is the case. My friends, let's just praise God that even religion cannot stop God. In fact, religion just allows God to work His purposes, as clearly stated here through the mouth of Gamaliel. And so God's work cannot be thwarted. And as we close Acts chapter 5, let's just look at verses 41 and 42. Here we see not only can God's work, God's work will not be thwarted, but God's work is done through the ordinary means of preaching and teaching the Word of God. And we're really gonna we're really gonna pivot and turn into Acts chapter six with that thought and with that understanding. That it is not entertainment, it is not some sort of magic formula. It, it, it isn't having enough money or having enough land or having enough seats. It isn't, it isn't having the personality. But it, my friends, it has been, it always will be the preaching and the praying of the Word of God that furthers God's work. Verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council. That's the Sanhedrin. Rejoicing. I mean, could you imagine, right? You're in the presence of this horseshoe-shaped 
very intimidating looking, 70 plus 1, 71, council, the Sanhedrin, and every single one of them looks like they want to kill you, and you can hear them breathing, you are going to die. You walk out of that room, the door's closed, and you have no idea what's going on, and you come back in. <laughs> yeah, they rejoice. They've been let go. And, 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 and it has nothing to do with their personality. It has nothing to do with their wit. It has nothing to do with what they've said. They don't say a thing, Luke records. What is it? They rejoice that they have been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. So they, so they go back to where it all begins in Jesus Christ. And in verse 42, and in every day, and every day, in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. You see, there is, there is, a, there is no other calling. There is no other way that God works than first and foremost through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. That is the mission the church has. That is what Grace Church of Mentor, as God wills, will continue to do until He comes. Preach and teach the Word of God. There's the method. It's preaching and teaching. It's not primarily lent to itself to entertainment, is it? There is the content. Jesus as the Christ. You can't soften that. Christ who has been crucified, who has been risen again, who conquers death and puts sin right where it belongs. You can't soften that message. And it's interesting. The word translated here, preaching, is the word euangelizo. That is preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the first time here that it shows up in Acts, and Luke will subsequently lose it, use it uh, uh, throughout his letter here, emphasizing the the go and give the good news, preaching and teaching, and so with one. Accord and with one voice they rejoice and they say, Let's continue. Let's continue to preach. Let's continue to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And so God works outside the church. We saw that here in Acts chapter 5. Right? He, he works through the evil intentions of men. He, he works in His timing and in His way. He, he works through the ordinary means of preaching. His works can't be stopped. But then as we kind of turn the corner tonight and go into Acts chapter 6, we see that God also is working inside the church. We saw that actually at the very beginning of Acts chapter 5 and at the end of Acts chapter 4, right? Remember the incident with Ananias and Sapphira? God really cares about the interior of the church, the relationships, the people of the church. 
And so Luke takes us back now in Acts chapter 6 to the reality that God is working and he has and, and his working bears responsibility for each one of us. There's something that each one of us ought to be doing because of the work that God is accomplishing through his church. So let's read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and we'll make a few comments and go home. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews, that's the Greek-speaking Jews, against the native Hebrews, or the Jews that, in the native tongue at this point, probably Aramaic, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of the food. So there's a language barrier. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were being obedient to the faith. So God is working through His faithful witnesses to proclaim the gospel. And He's doing it inside the church as well. What is the issue? The issue in Acts chapter one, uh, 6, verses 1 through 7, is that of unity again. Just like, just like it was at some level at the beginning of Acts chapter 5, the purity and the unity of the church. And so, God works through unity. You could do all kinds of cross-references, but the primary one would be Ephesians chapter 4, where we understand that we are called in one Lord, one baptism, one hope, one spirit. We have one church. There's a unity that you and I have the responsibility to maintain. You see, even in the few hours of the church, <laughs> there were who there? I mean, there were sinful people. There were fallen people. Sure, you had the apostles, but even Peter failed. And so the church is made up of a bunch of sinful people. I don't have to tell you that. You know that. But I think sometimes we kind of look at our church environment and we, we, we kind of either fail to remember or we, or, or we kind of don't consider the reality that even Grace Church of Mentor is filled to the seat with sinful people with people who will fail. And that you and I have, we bear the responsibility of maintaining 
in the Spirit of God, unity in this body. It's not just something that comes automatic. It's not just something that we could say, oh, we're saved, we have the Spirit of God working in us. It is just going to happen. Oh, in Acts chapter 6, we have to be intentional, Luke is telling us, to guard and to maintain the unity that the Spirit produces. And we see now at this time, the disciples, this is the mathetes, this is the followers of Jesus Christ, I think Luke even uses here. In other words, he's not just saying the believers, but he's even narrowing it down to those who follow Jesus Christ, right? The one Lord in Ephesians chapter 4. <laughs> there isn't a bunch of personalities in the church. There ought not to be. There's one, and his name has always been, it will be Jesus. That's who we rally around. That's who we follow. That's who we point to. And so even tonight, we experience a great, uh, 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 you know, plethora of instruction. We are seated here in the auditorium, in the family room tonight. There's a class on creation. In the Berean room, there's a, there's a class revolving around 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It's not a matter of you follow this person, you follow this person, you follow. It is the reality that it is one Lord, Jesus Christ, and we are just mathetes. We are just His followers. And so we have to maintain unity underneath who we're following, that is, Jesus Christ. And, and notice that at this time, the disciples were increasing in number. Right? So the more sinners that fill the seats, the easier it gets. Right? <laughs> it just goes to foul. Luke's kind of setting it up. You know, things are great, but there's more sinners. So guess what? Unity is becoming a problem. And while diversity certainly is to be celebrated, it always needs to be checked underneath the one Lord, Jesus Christ. And so there's a complaint that arises from those who are, who are Greek-speaking Jews. Most likely not from the area, the Diaspora, probably coming back. Uh, a lot of them, maybe even a lot of them, like um, Nicholas in Acts chapter 6, verse 7 here. Uh, excuse me, verse 5. A proselyte from Antioch. Right? And remember, in, in Acts chapter 4, there was, there was a great multitude of, of, of believers, being, of people, of Jews being saved. Many of them proselytes, many of them not from Jerusalem. And so what happened when I got saved and I wanted to hear the instruction of the church and I'm not from this area, what, did I, what do I do? I don't have a house I don't have land. I don't have a job. I'm a sojourner. And so what happens to the church at the very beginning? You've got people who are saved who reside and have property in Jerusalem, and then you have people that are saved that, that don't have those things. They don't have a way to make money and, and provide food for themselves. And so in Acts chapter 4, what happens? We have this great unity arising up and people who have extra land and extra 
extra assets, sell them, and they, remember, they lay them at the apostles' feet, the proceeds at the apostles' feet. And the apostles determine the distribution based on need. That's a great setup, right? Who can argue with the apostles? But now, in Acts chapter 6, we see that the church has grown so big that that original oversight with the apostles, that original system, that original administrative mechanism is no longer working. It's not working. And so the widows who don't have any property, who don't have a job, who probably don't have any family because they're from, remember, these are the Greek, speak. these are most likely those not from Jerusalem back now that are without family, that really are, have no way to provide for themselves and they're being overlooked. Luke doesn't say this is a caustic thing. He doesn't say this is, a, is an on-purpose thing. It's just a matter of administration. They're being overlooked in the daily serving, our text supplies of food, their needs. So in verse 2, the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. So they see it. They see that there's a problem. You know, the more people that enter a place, the more problems occur. We're learning that again as we have another little one in our household. Right now there's some problems with sleep, right? Uh, but even still, I was actually talking with a few ladies, and, and those of you who have multiple children, y- you know that sometimes even the firstborn or, or the, the others that, that, that have been existing <laughs> to, up until this point without, you know, someone who needs 24-7 attention, how are they? So they were asking, how's Stella? I said, oh, well, she's good. And then something occurred to me. Oh, yeah, I remember yesterday she, she just kind of out of nowhere cried about baby using her blanket. And we laugh, right? And I went on to say, well, Stella, that wasn't even your blanket to begin with. That, mommy and Daddy had that blanket way before you were even, you know, caught. That didn't seem to calm her down at all. <laughs> so I couldn't rationalize with her in that regard. But the reality is, is that the more people that come, but, but can we use that as an excuse not to want to grow? Have we ever heard that excuse before? I have. We can't use it as an excuse, but sometimes we do. Oh, how are we going to do that? How are we going to accommodate? My friends, preach and teach the Word of God and let the Word of God through the Holy Spirit of God work. And whoever comes, comes. And He brings the increase. So, yeah, yeah, things get messy. In fact, Donna has this saying, sorry, Donna, 
in the office. She likes to quote a proverb, right? Where there are no ox, what? The crib is clean. Well, it's not very clean in the offices of Grace Church of Mentor, because we've got a lot of ox around. That's just the reality. But we, we have to maintain unity. And we've got, we have the responsibility to do that. And that's what Luke is drawing our attention to tonight. I also want to see the implication that practical issues really do become spiritual problems. Right? I mean, ultimately in, in verse 1, there is, there is no record of sin. Right? We have to understand that. This was not a malicious intent by a group of people to overlook certain individuals or to hoard food for a select group of individuals. This was merely just an oversight that happened on more than one occasion, enough that it was such a problem that they brought it to the apostles' attention. After all, don't forget, at this point, Who's still administrating the system of distributing the needs? It's the apostles, the very ones that they go to complain to. Right? So it's, it's become a problem. And no one's calling the apostles out here and saying, you guys have sin in your heart, you need to repent. No, it's just a matter of overlooking, but, but we understand that practical issues do really become spiritual problems on the individual level, don't they? Right? Sleep. If you don't get enough sleep, what happens? Some of you are bearing that consequence right now as I preach, so someone go like this. Right? If you don't get enough sleep, what happens? Right? You're cranky, you're moody. I had a professor in seminary who said, you know, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is sleep. <laughs> Should we all just go home and practice? <laughs> I got a lot of amens out of that one. Right? Just put your mind down, discipline your thoughts, and get some good sleep and let God be God. You know, diet, right? There are things I should not and usually discipline myself to not have on Saturday night because I know that they affect me. You'd say, well, Pastor Steve, you probably shouldn't have them ever. <laughs> it's probably true, right? But I'm at least on a, you know, no Saturday night Thing so that I can physically be ready for Sunday. Right. Habits. Right. Even non-sinful habits can eventually lead to spiritual problems, can't they? And so there's implications here, I think, for us to understand that we can't just let things go and 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 ultimately just be the bigger person. Well, I'm a Hellenistic Jew, and I'm going hungry. I'm starving. I'm not going to say anything. And I have a pretty deep voice for a widow. Sorry about that. I'm more spiritual. No. 
The immediate application here is obviously the unity in the church. We saw that God cares about the unity and the, and the purity of the church with Ananias and Sapphira. And he, he didn't allow that problem to go unaddressed. And, and, and here, the same is true. The problem cannot go unaddressed. My friends, why? It's not just a matter of practical meals. It's, it, right? I mean, so the widows starve. They die. They see Jesus. But it's better for them. Yeah, I think we'd all probably agree with that at the end of the day. But there's a testimony of the church at stake. Right? And look at the spiritual impl impl implications in verse 1. Now at the time while the disciples were, what? Increasing in number. And just in case you think that I'm making this up, let's go to verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly. So these practical applications that maintain and foster the unity of the Spirit have far-reaching spiritual implications. So much so that the success of the church's mission rides on it. So just as God is working outside the church through guys like now I can't do it again, Gamaliel, he is working inside the church in you and me, and we must maintain. Disunity, we have that responsibility. And so God works through the unity of the church. He works through the leadership of the church. Right in verse 2, the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples. Says, hey listen, we can't neglect the word of God. We can't really administrate. And we understand from Paul that Administration is a spiritual gift that is given to the Spirit of God, from the Spirit of God. But even though, that they, even though they had the Spirit of God's given administrative gift, they don't have time. There's only 24 hours in a day. That's true still of even an apostle. And so they weigh. And they, they say, no, there's a priority for leadership. And that is the Word of God and prayer. And so there's a priority. And I just want to commend you for allowing, especially Pastor Tim, to have that priority as he leads this congregation. He has a lot of help underneath him, and that is to your credit. That is because you are the ones who help him. And we cannot forget that the most valuable thing that the leaders of Grace Church of Mentor can do, are called to do, 
must prioritize to do is studying, preaching, and praying the Word of God. And so that is true here. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And so what do they do? In order to accomplish this, they, oh, here's a little dirty word. You ready? Because people can abuse this word, but this is a spiritual function. They delegate. Sometimes that's a very spiritual thing to do. In fact, we see that often in a New Testament church. Verse 3, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom whom we may put in charge of this task. Why seven? I really don't know. Maybe that's all that was needed. It could be that often in, 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 in cities like Jerusalem, there were seven judges. And so seven was kind of a, 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 a seemed like a pretty good number to, to, to have as an administrative function. We know that these seven men didn't do it themselves. There were, thou, there were tens of, there were probably 20-some thousand believers at this point in Jerusalem. I don't know how many widows there were, but probably way more than seven could literally do themselves. So these, these men even oversaw the administration that others helped in the feeding, in the provisions. And so they delegate and they delegate to men that are that have good that have a good reputation this word reputation is really where we get our word martyr from it's the same word that's used in acts chapter 1 and verse 8 and you shall be my witnesses martos These were men that were known, that walked around, and were esteemed highly by others. They had a good character that, quite frankly, was obvious to all who met them. And so, they were of good reputation. They had character. And they were full of the Spirit and of wisdom. They knew the Word of God. They bore the fruit of the Spirit. You know, in Acts, here we could say, oh, well, the Spirit was a little bit more evident. Remember, it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. But isn't the Spirit of God evident in the believer's life today? Is the Spirit any different? Is His power any less? Is the need any Less urgent? No. No, the Spirit of God bears His fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. We walk in the Spirit of God. We don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So these are men that are full of the Spirit 
in the practical hands and feet spirit, fear of the Lord, wisdom. And they were competent, whom we may put in charge of this task. They were competent. And right away, we may say, okay, well, um, what are the implications of this delegation? There's a couple things that I think we need to consider tonight. First of all, this, there is a process for leadership in the church. And, and leadership in the church is, a, is, is, is further defined and clarified by Paul in 1 Timothy and in Titus. But here we see that there's a problem and so, how do we fix the problem? How do we meet the needs? We choose leadership. What's that process? Right? Problem arises, a solution is proposed here by the apostles. Right? And then what's the process? Then the, the leadership says here, here's the solution. What do you think? Oh, that sounds like a good solution by the, by the unity of the congregation. Then here we see, verse 5, the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen and the other six. And so the congregation nominates and selects and puts forward to the apostles. And then what happens in verse number 6? They were brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. They signified that they, they were, it was appropriate. They were leaders. They acknowledged the reality of their leadership in the church. It was formalized. And so there is a specific way to have leadership in this church, in the church. And this is a good first starting outline to that. Many people will say, well, this, these are the first uh, six deacons. And, and that, that, that certainly uh, can be true, I suppose. But this service of tables in verse number one, in verse number two, diakonai, Luke uses that in Acts chapter one in reference to the apostles too. So I don't know if, if this is exactly yet the formal office of deacon. I don't know if we could go that far. I think kind of looking back now from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and looking back here, we could say 2020, okay, these men, this is a good first start to the deacons of the church. In fact, in Acts chapter 21, Philip, the evangelist, He's not called the deacon there. Do you know what he's called? He's called the evangelist, one, uh, one of the seven. So, I don't want to be dogmatic one way or the other. Are these the first deacons or not? I think, I think 
let's move all past that. And let's understand that the reality is, there is a process for leadership in the church. And the leadership does have a legitimate function. And ultimately, it is all for the, the, the focus, the effort of maintaining unity in this body so that we can be faithful witnesses to preach and proclaim the Word of God. Does that make sense? So, there's a certain level of delegation. And, 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 and doesn't that kind of just kind of settle a little bit? Those of you who aren't deacons, those of you who are ladies and who teach, there's, there, is, there is a reality that there is leadership in the church. And it is necessary and it is needed. Whether it's one of the twelve, that's another interesting corollary here because we're not talking about elders and deacons, we're talking about apostles, the twelve and the seven. Remember, Acts is not prescriptive, it's descriptive. And so I believe it's describing the leadership that is necessary here in this church. That's why we don't have just seven deacons. We actually have quite a bit more. We have like almost 22 or something, maybe more. And so leadership is necessary. And the beautiful thing, the the, the beautiful thing is that this is not just some on the whim kind of thing, that there is a legitimate process And it is a concrete one. Take comfort tonight that there is no other way outside of reading God's Word for you and for me to be so assured of God's will that when God's people get together and they agree on something, that is the Spirit of God. And they affirm it. My friends, that is clearly the call of God's will in someone's life. That is really the force behind what is happening here. Right? Problem? Solution proposed? The congregation in unity brings up these men and calls them, and the apostles, part of the congregation, affirm that. What, what, what more clarity can we have in the will of God? And so there's some wonderful things that we learn as we maintain the unity, the responsibility that we have for this place. And so, the Lord Jesus, the congregation, you and me. He uses leadership. He uses unity here in this church, in this church in Acts chapter 6, for you and for me to be faithful witnesses, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we seek to maintain unity, as we seek 
to grow and things get more complicated as our culture gets darker and darker. As more and more churches and more and more of our friends transition their ministries and their philosophies and their worship to entertainment. There is one thing that ought to remain constant, whether, we're, whether we see it in Acts chapter 5, whether we see it in Acts chapter 6 here, whether it's about the unity of the Spirit of God working in the church, or whether it's, it's, it's about God using all kinds of religious men and, and circumstances to further His work. It's a pretty simple, pretty clear unchanging mission for this church. Verse 7. The Word of God kept spreading. For you and for me to be faithful, proclaimers, witnesses, testifiers of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And look at how Luke ends this section. Sure, we know the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And he even makes this comment, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient. That There's nothing too hard for God. And my friends, there is nothing more effectual than doing God's work God's way, and it really comes down to two simple things of all time. There's no gimmicks, there's no no entertainment, there's no other kind of, of scratching your head where it doesn't itch. It's two things. It's prayer and the Word of God. And so tonight I leave you with that. That as we seek to be faithful witnesses, let's let God work, sure. We certainly have a responsibility, sure. And let's not depart from the reality that God works and His work is always through His Word and it is our responsibility to pray. Father, tonight I pray that You would help us to be men and women that would increasingly um, just understand that the world is a radical place for Christians. I mean, how can we read through Acts and not really not really (laughs) kind of walk through the book and say, wow, what a radical thing to be a Christian. It's no different today. And I take comfort this night that there is nothing that has changed. That it is the Word of God and the Spirit of God working as we pray for boldness. And so tonight, Lord, continue to use us, continue to work through us, continue to grow us in Your Word. And help us to be faithful, bold, Spirit-governed proclaimers of it. And You bring the increase. And you help us to be responsible to maintain the unity that your spirit produces. In your name we pray. Amen.